We're at a point in the year where kids do the same thing every year. Dad, Mom, how many days until Christmas? Kids, young and old, 41-year-old kid, all of us look forward to Christmas. Uh, For one reason or another, some people like the gifts, some people like getting them, some people like giving them, others like the music, and then there are people like us who are just kind of obsessed with it. That we like all of it. Give me more and more. I go visit the Christmas shop up in the mountains at least once a year during the middle of summer to remind me how awesome Christmas is. But something always happens after Christmas. There's always a letdown, isn't there? December 26th always comes. I know that Christmas is over. We've got to take down our Christmas lights. We've got to take the tree down. The house goes back to normal. But I don't want normal. I want Christmas all the time, so even in the summer I make a trip or I start counting the days myself. I've got an app on my phone that tells me how many days until Christmas. I eagerly await November 1st, which I will make this official. It is the international day to start Christmas decorations, November 1st. So next year you put them up November 1st. It is perfectly acceptable. But even if you're a Grinch and you wait till after Christmas to put up your decorations, they're still wonderful, aren't they? We love all of this buildup in this season because it's special. But this doesn't just belong to Christmas, does it? Set aside the Christmas season for just a moment and think about some of the most moving songs that we sing here at FBA. Death is defeated and Jesus reigns. Tell the whole world there is hope in Jesus' name. He pushed back the darkness, he conquered our sin, and Christ will make all things new again. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul. For my life he bled and died, Christ will hold me fast Justice has been satisfied, he will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. What do these songs have in common? What are so many songs that we sing on Sunday? What do they all have in common? They point to a better future. That that we know that goods and family and friends will one day go away, but Christ will reign forever. So they point us to that future. They point us to a better future than what we have now. Even if we don't know exactly what that future is. We want a better future. We want a future that is is more prosperous, not financially, but a more spiritually prosperous future than we have now. And even in our flesh, we want a better future for our children than what we have now. And see, this is what Isaiah 35 is pointing us to. Not a better future for our kids so much, but a better future for all people who trust in Christ. A future that is infinitely better than anything we could ever imagine. And this is what we're studying this morning. 
a better future. So diving into our text, the first thing that we do see in verses 1 and 2 is the transformation of God's creation. In the beginning, God created all things, and he saw that all was good. And then he made the first man in the likeness of himself. And then God created a a helper, his spouse. He created a woman so that he would have companionship. And in Genesis, it says that God himself planted the garden so that they would have food to eat. But something else was happening. God created the garden for beauty. Not just shelter, not just food, but for beauty. So that Adam and Eve could could walk and see the beautiful trees and the beautiful greenery that's there and appreciate what God has done, the ultimate perfect artist. In other words, there was plenty of food and plenty of beauty. There was never a time where the first two people were bored or they were hungry. There was no fear of violence or of death. And it was all that they had was provided by God. And this all changed in Genesis 3 when the first two people sinned. Everything that you can think of in our world that is bad has its roots tracing back to Genesis chapter 3. Paul says in Romans 8 that creation has been groaning ever since. Adam's sin created a shockwave that's still felt today by each and every one of us. But something else happened in Genesis 3, something way better. God promised that a Savior would come and fix what is broken in Eden. God's people would have to have have faith and wait for his coming, but as the Bible unfolds, the relationship gets clearer the relationship between God and man. And so as the Messiah is coming, the the waiting for the Messiah, things get clearer and clearer for people. So there is no mistake. And so the original readers of this letter in Isaiah, they would have been waiting for a Messiah. Hadn't come yet. But they would have been eagerly awaiting for the Messiah to come to make things right. And the original readers would have remembered the covenant that God has made with them. See, when the Israelites were brought into the promised land, uh, it was described as a land flowing with milk and honey. Think of it as Eden, just not as perfect. This is a reminder of what Adam and Eve had. It was close. It it certainly wasn't the desert that they had been wandering around in for years. But God told them that if they failed to keep the covenant, he would curse the land by withholding rain. Without rain, crops don't survive. Without crops, animals and humans can't survive either. Life in 2022 is just a little different than the wandering Israelites. But there are some similarities. The effect of Adam's fall has affected us in the same way that it affected them. And so I want you to personalize this in your mind right now. I want you to think through how the fall of Adam has affected you. If you're not currently suffering pain now, there will be a time in your life where you will. There is suffering aches and pains, all the way to 
chronic, debilitating illnesses. Have you ever thought about how those things are a result of Adam and Eve's sin? What about mental suffering? Anxiety? Depression? Addiction? Sinful thoughts? We experience those things because sin is a part of our story. What about spiritual suffering? What about those doubts that are nagging in our minds and we're questioning whether God is really good or not? Maybe we question the authenticity of the faith where we're battling whether we can trust the Scripture. See, what I see in Isaiah is all of this happening. I I see it specifically in chapter 35 Uh, that all of creation will be transformed by Jesus. That all of these bad things that are a result of the fall and a result of our own spiritual deadness and sin and rebellion, all of it will be fixed. In verses 1 and 2, we see a picture of a barren wasteland, a barren desert. We lived in Phoenix for three years and you go outside and you look around and you see a lot of brown and then you look up at these mountains and you squint your eyes and you see more brown. That's what a desert is. That the, the, the dirt gets everywhere. It gets on your car. If you open the door, it gets in your house and it can even get in your lungs and you can get what's called valley fever. It's everywhere. Now, it does rain in the desert, but only about eight inches a year. So not enough to combat the scorching heat of the desert summers. And from where we lived, we still lived in the metro Phoenix area. You could drive 30 minutes outside of our home, and you look around and you see nothing. Just a road. Now, suppose... You had never seen a desert, or you have taken someone who's never seen a desert before, you blindfold them, you put them out into the middle of the desert, go to Phoenix and drive about an hour west, and you leave them there. And you take the blindfold off, and they look around, and they're turning around, and yeah, there's some green a little bit, mostly things you shouldn't touch, some cacti, you see little lizards running around, definitely scorpions. But you look around and you say, there is no way that this place can sustain life. It just doesn't look like it. Certainly not human life. There's no water, right? There's no shade. 120 degree heat during the day and 100 degrees at night is just baking us. And spiritually speaking, that's where we are. Ephesians says that we are dead We have no life in us. We're even worse than the desert. At least the desert has life. We have none. Spiritually speaking, we are kind of zombies, aren't we? We we physically feel pain. We, We have emotions. But Ephesians says that our hearts are dead. But look at verses 1 and 2 with me. See the glory of of what God is going to do in this passage. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. 
It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. The desert that has been covered with dirt that looks dead will blossom. Just as much in Isaiah 11 when it says the stump that looks useless, from that stump comes Christ. In the desert, God's glory shines when all of creation is restored. There is no no more need for a desert. It will be lush. It will be like the Garden of Eden again. Green and flowers and beauty. It's not difficult to make the connection to Ezekiel 37 where Ezekiel gets the vision of the valley of dry bones. God tells the people, my servant David shall be king over them and they shall have one shepherd. Israel will be restored and that restoration will come from the line of David which finds its end in Christ. The people who would have heard Ezekiel's prophecy, Israel's dead man. Israel can't survive. This is a stump. There's nothing good coming out of a stump. They didn't have land. They didn't have a king. They didn't have a temple. How will we be restored to greatness if we have nothing? And add to that, the entire world stands against us. Ezekiel's vision was given by God as an encouragement that just because something seems lifeless doesn't mean that it is. On many occasions, it seems as if Israel had no hope, but as we see in Isaiah 35, God promises that the lifeless desert will blossom and people will see the glory and majesty of God. They will come to his mountain. And so the question then comes, is this just for the Israelites? We anxiously await the day when Jesus will return to rid us of the pain and suffering and he will do it for his glory. Most of all, we await the death of death. We get sick, we age, and we die because of sin. Now hear me, I'm not saying that your direct sin has directly caused your, your incoming death. I'm not saying that. And just because you may be sick or suffering, it doesn't mean that there is a direct spiritual cause for it in the bigger grand scheme of things there is it's called sin as soon as sin was introduced into humanity's story we suffer that all death all sickness all illness is a result of living in a sin plagued world that already not yet, already saved, already forgiven of our sins, but not yet perfected, not yet removed from the sin that surrounds us. So we are mortal because of sin. We get sick because of sin, but that's not the way that it will always be. Look at verses 3 through 7 with me and tell me, tell me that you're not excited about what God promises to do. Listen. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. 
Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. This is such a wonderful passage. Because it's a lot like Isaiah 11 was for us last week. The wolf will walk with the lamb, the leopard with the goat, the cow with the bear, and the children with the snake. In chapter 35, we see that there will be a day when anyone with an illness or disability will have that removed. It will be taken away. Any aches and pains or suffering. It means that there will be lasting peace for all creation and the effects of sin, namely death, go away. But did you notice in verse 4, something else is happening. That God through the prophet talks about an event that is coming. I'm going to read this again. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. To quote one commentator, these words so obviously go infinitely beyond anything that happened in the Old Testament that they must refer to the salvation God wrought in Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this. Are you weak? God will fix that. Are you blind? Deaf? Lame? That too. God will come and save you. Water will flow through the desert. In fact, there will be no more desert. It will be a land of vegetation and life. And so you say, well, this just belongs to Israel. No, the promises given here belong to everyone who is found in Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies that we see So when those promises are given to Israel, those promises are given to Christ. And thus he gives them to us. The common way of viewing the afterlife today, unfortunately, is that most people will experience these wonderful things. That that if they live a good life, if they're nice people, if they do good things, if they don't harm people, well then God will show them mercy and that they will be given these promises, that they will experience that forever. Only the really bad people, only, the, only Hitler and all the other uh, dictators, only those guys really go to hell. The rest of us, we get to go to heaven. Nothing in the Bible gives us that idea. And so you have to ask, who was Isaiah writing to? He was writing to descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These were people who God gave his covenant to and the people he worked through to proclaim his glory. Were these at the time, were these promised given to Egypt? They were given to a specific people, God's people, Israel. So you see why it's not plausible that God would go from giving covenant promises to one group of people to allowing everyone to be partakers of those promises. So then the question is, who are the ones that are the recipient of these promises? Those who are in Christ. That's who receives these promises, specifically in verse 4. Jesus is the finishing point, the culmination of the Old Testament. 
One writer said this, Jesus is the last Adam, the true Israel, the suffering servant, the son of David, the faithful remnant, the ultimate prophet, the reigning king, the final priest. So those promises belong to us, the church, through Christ. But what about those who are not part of the family of God? Now verse 4 says that God will come with vengeance. And we know that in this it could mean that God is coming quickly and God is coming forcefully. But the truth is, not even just here, but across all of Scripture, we see a promise that the ones who are found faithful in Christ will experience new life. And all of the promises found in Scripture and the ones who are not found in Christ will experience eternal torment. This is what the Bible says it means judgment is waiting for everyone who does not put their hope and faith in Christ. And some Christians find this disturbing. They, they say, well, I, I just can't enjoy the fact that those nice friends and relatives of mine who denied Jesus as the Messiah will suffer. Suffer the wrath of God. And I'd ask you, do you enjoy the promise that Jesus will come to save you? Of course you do. But you cannot enjoy the promise of salvation and spiritual blessing if you do not understand the wrath of God. After all, what is God's grace saving you from in the first place? God's grace saves you from experiencing his wrath. You can't understand grace without understanding wrath. And the wrath of God rests upon everyone who stands in their own goodness or their own righteousness. Anyone who goes down the path of their own making are promised to suffer this perfect and righteous wrath. See, we are a gospel-centered church for this very reason, really two reasons, but for the reason of proclaiming the glory and goodness of the gospel. And so we preach every week, we preach gospel-centered sermons, we teach gospel-centered lessons because we're reminding ourselves week in and week out of the goodness of God, that he breathed life into our lungs, that he made us alive through Christ. And when we forget that, we tend to take our eyes off the most important things. We say that we haven't forgotten the gospel, but do our actions show that? What is it that consumes us? What is it that we think about or talk about the most? If it's not the gospel, the gospel may not be the most important thing to us. Do we share Jesus with those around us? Are we actively discipling others? Are we more concerned about buildings, budgets, and preferences than we are about being obedient to the Great Commission by going into our neighborhood and sharing Jesus with those around us. See, we preach the gospel each week because that is what matters most to us. And what matters most to us is what drives us forward. What matters most to us is what consumes us. If our focus is on the gospel, the other stuff doesn't take much time in our lives. But if the gospel matters most, everything we do will be done with the gospel in the center. That's one. We also preach the gospel because we know that there are people who come to church on Sunday who do not know Christ. 
While the primary purpose of the gathered assembly is the edification and the equipping of the saints in order to be sent out as missionaries, we are aware that there are people who join us from time to time who are not believers. And we're grateful for that. Please, please know, grateful for that. We share the gospel in our preaching, and our preaching is gospel-centered so that you, if you are not a follower of Christ, will hear it, and the prayer is that you will trust in him and repent. It's why we plead every single week for you to trust Christ. We do this because the gospel is the most important thing, that God will come with vengeance against those who do not believe, and he will come with vengeance and save those who do. But that obviously has not come yet. We, we are still awaiting. We've, we've had the, the, the Messiah come initially, but we are now waiting for the Messiah to return to do everything that Isaiah 35 promises. So what happens in the meantime? We call this our Christian journey. This is verses 8 through 10. The people reading this prophecy for the first time would have recognized what a spiritual journey meant. Uh, they were required, the people of God were required multiple times to travel to Jerusalem to worship. So think about this journey that they all had to make into the city and read verses 8 through 10. And a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on their way, on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. Verse 8 says the highway, that this is a, a road that is often uplifted. It's, it's higher than the other roads. And so people would have seen it. It's similar to what we talk about in the, the, the mountain of God, that people will come and they will see it. It's unmistakable what this is. This is the, the way. But Isaiah 35 is different because it's not just traveling to a location as worship. Instead, it's a pilgrimage that ends in heaven. Isaiah writes that the highway will not be traveled by the unclean, those who have ignored the call of the gospel. And notice that it repeats what's already been said, that there will be no danger along the way. And so you may think, well, wait, time out. I've been a Christian for X amount of years, and I've seen nothing but danger. Uh, on, on my spiritual journey, I've seen nothing but, but, but struggles and, and toils and snares. How can this be? Look at verse 9. But the redeemed shall walk there. Well, people who follow God... Face trials? Absolutely. And in fact, Jesus promises that we will face trials. He said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. But if God is the one who gave us faith and gave us his gift of salvation, then he is the one who keeps you safe. If you understand that, this reference makes perfect sense. Hear the words of Jesus in John 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Those the Father gives to the Son, the sheep, they will never be taken out of the hand of God. God is the one who adopted us into his family, giving us faith and salvation and since it's a gift of God, we can't lose it. So bring on the troubles. 
Bring on the difficulties. Bring on those trials. Because here is the reality of the Christian faith. All of those things can't take away the greatest thing that we have. There is no amount of weaponry, spiritual or physical, that can take my salvation away. Why? Because I'm not the one who earned it. No amount of of fighting against me, no amount of persecution can remove the gift that God has given to me and to you. There's no danger on the road. What's a lion? What's a bear? What's a leopard? What's a tank? What is a soldier with a gun pointed at my head? What is any of this? Nothing. Nothing. To die means that I'm with Christ. That's gain, isn't it? That road that may seem, from our perspective, from our eyes, may seem dangerous, may seem like we don't want to go there. Guess what? It is the road that leads to salvation. And we may be getting hit, but the reality is that God is the one who has his protection over us. The pain and the suffering is part of the journey, but we know that our souls are secure. And then we see something in verse 10. This is what happens at the end. We see the return. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. If they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. God will ransom his people and they will return and come to Zion. This is, uh, includes freedom from the guilt of sin and a removal of the effects of sin on this world. The blessing of God will overwhelm his people and all sorrow will be wiped away. The more that I read scripture, the more that I study, and I'm way far away from where I want to be, certainly, as we all are. The more I read it, though, and the more I study, I see one united story of God's work. And the more that I see that, the more I'm convinced that there really are only two ways to go. There's not many, there's not millions or thousands, there's two. On one hand, the path is that most people take is the one of their own choosing. I get to determine my future. I have autonomy over myself. I am sovereign over my own life. This path elevates self above everything else. Those who follow this path hate anyone or anything that stands in their way. I want to express myself in my own way. I want to live in my own way. And if you step in front of me, I will run you over. Is that not what we experience day in and day out? But what are they really doing? They're doing all they can to remove God and place themselves on the throne. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. The path of personal sovereignty is wide because it's the path that most people take. It's easier because it's natural. Have you noticed that you've never had to teach your children, 
look out for your own best interest first? You know what you have to teach your children? Place others in front of yourself. Treat others better than you treat yourself. See, we don't need to be taught, we don't need to be trained to love and care for ourselves. We don't really need that. It comes natural. And Jesus said that that way, caring for ourselves first above all else, leads to destruction. It's clear. But then Jesus said something else. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. It's not walked on by many. It's full of thorns and thistles. There are temptations along the way to turn and go back. If you're on a road and one has danger very clearly and the other one is pristine, which one are you choosing? The narrow road requires dying to self, setting aside preferences for the sake of others. It requires cultivating a spirit of giving. It demands that we seek unity around the gospel rather than pursuing what we desire. That's a hard road to walk. It's difficult. It can be painful. But Jesus said that road leads to life. And in Isaiah 35... This is the path that also leads to life. And what we see is that the power to walk this path does not come from us. We can't do it on our own. No amount of intellectual comprehension or reasoning skills can get you to the point where you feel you need to give up all for the sake of Christ. No amount of affection that you have can get you to that point either. Unless we have been convicted and indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we cannot make this journey. And there are two paths that sit before us, and they are clear. The destinations and the journeys could not be more different. And so the question, are we on the path of Isaiah 35? The path that Jesus laid for us? Or are we walking the path that looks better, that is easier, but that leads to destruction? Would you pray with me?